to do it with Tony, who was the most fascinating travel companion ever. I mean, I'll tell you that what the Tony on TV was definitely a watered down version of the real Tony. And I mean that in the best possible way, um, because the real Tony was so much more interesting. It seems to me the more places I see and experience, the bigger I realize the world to be. The more I become aware of, the more I realize how relatively little I know of it, how many places I have still to go, how much more there is to learn. Maybe that's enlightenment enough to know that there is no final resting place of the mind, no moment of smug clarity. Perhaps wisdom is realizing how small I am and unwise and how far I have to go. These are the words of Anthony Bourdain, and he is the subject, largely, of a memoir that Tom Vitale, his longtime director and producer, has written, which is coming out very soon. And I was fortunate enough to be sent an advanced copy, and it is wonderful and sad and one of the best accounts I've ever heard of somebody trying to grapple with the loss of somebody dear and and through the vehicle of suicide, which is something personally that I've been pretty obsessed with for a long time because it was something I struggled with myself very early on, about 10 or 11 years old. Um, I didn't like Anthony Bourdain while he was alive. I'm a little embarrassed to say. I, I saw the bravado from the, the glimpses that I got and somebody code switching a lot. I could sniff out privilege that was sort of posturing in a Bugs Bunny kind of way or a Holden Caulfield kind of way. And it, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And then his death um, created an itch. And going through the work, I, especially during COVID, I fell in love with him. And all the things that annoyed me, of course, it's just projection. It's my own bullshit. And uh, I remember seeing him once by accident. A friend took me to his one-man show in Brooklyn, and God, I couldn't stand it. And Tom Vitale reminds me near the end of this conversation, well, what did you not like? And I just said, oh, the bravado, you know, just the armor. And he said, well, he was incredibly shy. You know, what do you, what do you think he would need to get up there in front of people? Well, <laughs> he's, he's absolutely right. So I hope I didn't fuck up this interview too much with my own bullshit, but um, I... I just love this guy, Tom Vitale, and it was really hard looking at his face as we did this interview by Zoom, because he's still really raw. This is very much an open wound, and um, I hope there's some value in talking about difficult subjects. I do believe to talk about these things makes them manageable in some way. And if you disagree, don't listen, because we're going to talk a lot about some dark shit with, with this life, because... There's a lot of light with Bourdain, but you don't get that light unless you acknowledge and recognize the darkness that prompted a lot of it. And um, there you are. So I've gone on a lot longer than I should have, but I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Tom Vitale, on Tourist Information. I, w I was a huge fan of your book. This is a really hard thing to do that you did. <laughs> um, but I thought we just might start as, 
How does it feel now that you finished this book from where you began starting on such a challenging, painful endeavor? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's one of those things where you don't really realize it very clearly until something happens, like you find yourself laughing again and sort of remember what it was like to have laughter in your life. Not that that happens all the time, but for a long time there was, um, it was, it was a tough couple of years, as I'm sure you can imagine. You, you mentioned near the end of the book, a really poignant line that uh, a number of people come up to you and ask it whether or not Anthony left a suicide note. And you said, I was horrified when I realized <clears throat> I'd unwittingly been helping him to make one for 16 years. Is it fair for me to then interpret that, that his legacy was that suicide note? Is that- Oh your gosh, I, I certainly hope not. And, you know, in fact, um, It was a very big concern of mine and other people that were close to him when he initially died that his suicide would sort of tarnish his legacy. And I think that as time has gone on, uh, it's become clear that, you know, that, that it's not going to. Uh, it didn't invalidate his message of curiosity and travel and exploration and joy of life. Um, I mean, that said, his ending is certainly complicated and uh, unfortunate and very difficult. But no, I'd meant more with that line that basically the, I'd say a lot of the probably stresses in his life and things that were difficult were all out there plainly in the show when he'd joke about sort of his existential burden or even direct suicide jokes, um, the last meal conversation that would come up so much that uh, I guess it's, it's kind of, as I think a lot of people feel in a situation like this probably that a lot of the signs were there and you feel badly for not having seen them. Um, I mean, he was just always so full of life and powerful. I, almost if you would, tell me today that Tony was going to kill himself, I still wouldn't believe you. Hmm. Uh, have you had a chance to see Roadrunner, the documentary? I did see it, yes. There was a line in that that I found was disturbing, but also I thought quite profoundly insightful, where Bourdain's second marriage and having a child was interpreted as not an, that that wasn't the real Tony, that the real direction of his path was before and after that. And he kind of course corrected to go back onto the path he was on, which was, I thought, a very dark <laughs> interpretation. But as, as you suggest, and throughout this book, um, this was something that he seemed to be obsessed with from very early in his life, a kind of I don't know if self-destruction is the right word, but somebody who boasted of, of um, 
always wanting to be an addict, always wanting to do heroin. This kind of darkness seems to surround the life as much as the light is there that's cast from it. And it seemed like throughout this book, you're kind of exploring this dialectic of all of the light and joy and curiosity. And at the same time, the other side that led to what you describe as agoraphobia, he's afraid to order room service, and this humor that doesn't seem like humor at a certain point. Well, so there's a, there's a bunch of things there. I mean, his humor, I don't know how much of that gets lost in um, by not hearing his voice, but he was just always so funny about everything. And um, it was definitely very sarcastic, uh, dark humor, but, you know, the absolute best that I've, I've ever experienced. Um, even when he was yelling at you or tearing you down, I mean, he did it with such brilliant creativity. And it, it, it really, I guess, kind of it was a bright side to, to getting yelled at that at least he was doing it with such style. Um, as far as uh, the, his end being an inevitable track, uh, I mean, of course, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I, I definitely would not um, say that I feel that way. I, I don't know, I spent a lot of time with the book, especially as I started it, almost hoping that I'd figure it out because that could bring me some peace. And I, I think ultimately you spend enough time thinking about that and there's, there's no answer or solution. Um, so, I feel like it was a really unfortunate accident in a certain way, and that you know, kind of like that feeling when you um, when you drink too much, and then the next day you're like, oh gosh, what did I say last night? I mean, I'd almost imagine that it would have been like that for him. You know, God, what did I do last night? That was stupid. Mm. Life was uh, stressful, definitely, but. He was at the top of his game and you know he really he really enjoyed that he That's knew what he knew what a special a special thing he had um i think maybe not to the degree that has become clear since his death we certainly didn't but i mean the fact that he could go uh to an arena and speak and five thousand people would come listen to him you know, that was both a little bit off-putting, I guess, uh, to him in a certain way. Like, why, why are these people here? But on the other hand, he did derive gratification from that. Absolutely. In, in my life, friends and, and some family members that I've lost to suicide, it, it seems to leave survivors with a, almost a an undertow to view their lives as a kind of investigation, not, not just into the end, but into so many different aspects of the life. It tends to invert the biography to be seen through the lens of the death. And 
you had this in, incredibly powerful scene that you depict about the memorial where you are observing everybody there as either being famous or associated with television. And you start to discuss that you are one of these people as well in terms of how you're tethered to Anthony uh, with how much of his life was on camera. And you have you have such an insightful way of, of kind of describing his phobias of, of being a clown, a, ter a terror of clowns because he would be afraid of becoming the clown who when you point a camera, he has to say something insightful or funny or eat something that you do not want to eat or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I just wondered what it was like for you to go back through the life when you began this project and, and what kind of revelations were there that you didn't really see while you were living so much of your life where it's like the professional and the personal seem to really blur with your dynamic with this man. Yeah, I think with Tony, there was no line between professional and the personal, which I think to a very large degree probably would happen to anyone who plays themselves on TV or the show with their name on it. Um, I mean, he would always say business is personal. Hmm. And um, I mean, I, I feel like I learned quite a bit about myself and about him in the process of writing that book to a big degree that we were, it was nonstop travel, go, go, go for, I mean, from 2006 until 2018 for me to all of these amazing places to do those shows, um, you know, so many a year. And it wasn't actually until after he died and all of a sudden there was nothing but time that I actually got to sort of process them in a real way. I mean, the edits would be some version of processing. We've been to a place, but as far as the whole ride was concerned, a lot of that in its own way, I think happened, happened after his death. Um, you know, I struggled a lot with that business personal line, um, the line between them. Just because it was a job and that, you know, it didn't feel like one to me, but I had to kind of remind myself that it was a job so that I guess maybe in a uh, form of self-protection in a certain way, um, you know, all the years that we were working together and, um, If I could do it again, I, I would have, I wish I'd been a bit more trusting in uh, myself and I guess him. I'm not sure if I'm articulating myself. I mean, I remember after he died, thinking that he, hated me um, and I guess one of the great things that came out of the book was being able to understand that um, he really did care for me which you know we always knew he was very close to the crew but um, 
I mean, we spent all of our time together. And uh, yeah, I definitely miss him a lot. We all do. I watched um, for the first time The King of Comedy yesterday, and for some reason it informed a little bit of Tony's degree of fame and some of the ways that you illuminated the struggle of, of somebody who touched millions and wherever he would go, people would you know yell his name or autographs or selfies. And you mentioned um, that this is somebody who touched millions but you were aware that he had struggled so immensely with his own personal life. And that was something he confessed to as well on the series. I, I think specifically in the um, Argentina episode, he talked to that therapist saying, I communicate for a living and I don't know how to communicate to my loved ones and the people closest to me. What, what do you what do you make of, of that schism? Because I, I bring up the king of comedy because there's a scene where Jerry Lewis some he's constantly being harassed when he's walking the streets of New York and the moment he doesn't sign an autograph for somebody the woman screams at him I hope you get cancer and that was apparently taken from real life from an incident that happened to Jerry Lewis and I've heard it brought up by a number of people close to Tony that he had a kind of codependence with fame in that he wanted to please people that he didn't know and be nice to everybody but you detail a very different person with his inner circle of, of the, the crew working on the show, somebody much more temperamental, much more sort of unstable and, and at times quite aggressive and hostile. And so I just wonder, like, how much of a struggle did it seem when you're creating this book for Tony to be Tony, both with you, with you and your intimate circle, but also in public? It just seems like a massive undertaking the stress he must have been under. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's very stressful um, to be in the public eye. And, you know, you add a lot of other stuff into that. I mean, his, his was not an easy job. Um, it was very rewarding, but there are definitely easier ways to uh, be in the public eye. That's just what you want. I mean, those shoots were very grueling. Um, you know, travel, jet lag, constantly being away. Um, and I mean, he traveled far more than I did. I, I didn't really know the public Tony. I only knew the Tony that we interacted with. Um, you know, the shows, looking back at them, I mean, his sort of public persona does change over the years. Kind of, I guess you could say in a way, moving more from the kitchen confidential Tony toward uh, almost like a Saint Anthony patron saint of, um, of travel and the underdog or, or whatever. And uh, I mean, all those were real parts of him, but um, I mean, he always definitely remained that kitchen confidential Tony. It's, he had to, everything was always a fight for him, be it from the network or just you know the forces of mediocrity or making sure that his vision or idea was, you know, communicated and going to um, be realized throughout an episode. So he, um, you know, he was a very strong, strong leader. 
What did you make of that that evolution? Because that's something that I've tried to track in in exploring his story. That the guy who was found on a slush pile at the New Yorker, and suddenly, gee shucks, I I have I'm in the New Yorker, and then suddenly I have a book deal, and then I'm the last person to have a TV show. And he seems like one of the most beloved natural people to have a TV show who does not look out of place in Vietnam with President Obama. And I'm interested in, and so was he, in the curation of the myth. He was very interested in romantic figures that seemed to be kind of North Stars for him. And so I always thought it was interesting, um, the playing up of the drug addiction and the kind of Lower East Side Tony versus my dad went to Yale and was an executive at Columbia Records. My mom was at the New York Times as a writer and an editor who was friends with David Remnick and, and Remnick's mother, or sorry, Remnick's wife. That's how the manuscript got there. It's a very different story when you look at it through somebody that sounds a lot more privileged than kind of the depiction that he would have you. And I'm, I'm not, I don't mean this in any demeaning way against him. I'm just intrigued by how the details become curated to something much more romantic and sort of, gee shucks, how did I get here? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone sort of puts uh, some kind of a spin on their own story. I think it was probably less calculated than more organic. I mean, we're talking about a 20 year period of trial and error. Sure. Um, and it was kind of a natural evolution in a certain way. Um, I think that interestingly, in Kitchen Confidential, you know, he spends some time railing on TV hosts, TV um, chefs like Emerald. And so I think for him, when TV came knocking right after that, there was very soon or almost instantaneously you know, the first of many, many existential crises that would come from his fame, where I'm automatically now a fraud because I'm going to go do that thing that I just complained about. And so I think the way that he dealt with that at first was to kind of see it as a, uh, I mean, he called it the con, basically, like, you know, these idiots network, they're going to give me all this money to go travel around the world. He also thought that nobody would watch the show. So I think that uh, it became popular was an unintended uh, <laughs> complication. Um, I, I guess it's I'm intrigued by somebody who seems so emotionally available. And at the same time, in after his death, a lot of people that had met him, spent time with him, friends with him, made the point that he had this, you describe it as a superpower to connect. But very often those people would come away feeling they had this wonderful conversation with him and learn nothing about him. And I kind of have noticed that when I went through his series, the entire thing after his death, that you get little breadcrumbs every three or four episodes, a detail here or there that seems quite revealing. But for the most part, he's much more comfortable being a listener. He's a wonderful listener. Um, but it does make me wonder about what's avoided as much as what he's concerned with revealing. I know nothing about his parents' marriage, his father's early death, and I wonder if he's avoiding it, that it, it carries more weight. And I wonder if that was something that you connected with him privately. 
Well, I think he wanted to avoid himself in whichever way he could in the shows because he didn't want to make a show about himself. He wanted to make, you know, a show about other people and the places that he went. And, you know, he had the unfortunate uh, gift that he was just so fascinating to listen to. Um, that, you know, uh, I'd say everyone from the people who watch the shows to definitely the network, who was always asking for sum up VOs, this kind of thing. And even to us on the crew, I mean, we just wanted to hear what Tony had to say. Um, whereas that was far less interesting to him. Mm. You know, in an ideal world, I mean, he loved making television and creating things and making people feel certain ways, the ways that he had felt somewhere, um, the experience that he'd had. And uh, for him, if he'd had his choice, he wouldn't have been in the show. He used to talk about that. The camera would just see what he saw rather than have to see him seeing it. Why do you think his prefer somebody who was working really diligently about breaking in to America or the world's consciousness as a storyteller, first in writing, he moved to TV when it seems like there's something antithetical to his character, at least in terms of his shyness. Wouldn't he have been more comfortable just on the page than in front of a camera performing? Uh, I mean, absolutely, except that I think that he always thought that he was one step away from all of this being over. So he was going to take every opportunity that, you know, he could have or he, that was offered to him. And TV was the one that really stuck. Mm as far as at least reaching the most number of people. I mean, regardless of whatever um, you say, uh, however uncomfortable you might have been with that, it, turning down whatever comes along with having a TV show where you get to kind of do whatever you want. I mean, it's a very rare person who can walk away from that. And in fact, he did. Um, after the second season of A Cook's Tour, the network, um, change management and international shows were very expensive so they wanted to rebrand and the domestic shows always rated better when he'd go to you know barbecues they wanted to refocus the entire series to barbecue domestic throughout the states and he said no and he quit and uh then it took a couple years before travel channel bought pilots for the show or no what would become No Reservations, it was originally called The Bourdain Experience um, at that point. And I think for a certain amount of time, he'd kind of made peace with not being on TV to some degree. I mean, if you read Medium Raw, the time he talks about in between um, <clears throat> No Reservations was not a good time for him. I think part of that was that, I mean, Without question, a cook's tour and how that changed him and that level of fame, the experiences he had on that that he then couldn't share with his first wife, Nancy, who we loved very much. Um, I mean, the TV ruined his first marriage. And so then TV went away. So I think there's that period of time in between the two shows where he's now living in the wreckage of his life you know, and wondering about the decisions that he had made to get there. 
and then it started again, and then it just kept going. It was said in the documentary, I don't remember if you said it specifically, that he was somebody that was so eager to get to the next place, and the moment he'd get there, he wanted to leave and would smoke a cigarette and finish half of it. There's this hurry, 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 and and yet there also seemed to be an element to him, the reflective part that was wondering, am I making a difference with this show? Am I, in the, in the, play, in the lives that I'm revealing and the places that I'm going, is this benefiting these people? I just wonder if you can, there seems to be something very bipolar that he's never escaping in, I guess, understanding his own value to people through his work and what he's sharing of himself. Um, is that is that fair to say? So I think there's a, one part of that is there's a, a difference between filming the show and editing the show. He loved editing the programs and seeing them come together more than the actual being there. Because the being there, you know, um, for a shy person constantly having to meet new people, I mean, I, I face that. I'm pretty shy. And that was one of the more difficult elements of the job was constantly meeting people and he was very sensitive so all these stories and people he was meeting and experiences it's sort of like a strobe light can be a bit overwhelming um but the shows are really were really made in the edit to a big degree and that's where he was able to i think really shine the most and where he had the most fun as far as that switch i think you know initially it started off as more self-indulgent let me just go travel around the world and have fun and that i mean tony had a very short attention span so i think that became boring to him quite quickly and so he i guess had to figure out how do i keep this interesting to myself you know um which was basically giving a platform for other people to tell their stories, which is not something you can ever become bored with because, I mean, everyone has their own really fascinating story. It was kind of a brilliant um, thought or, or transition, I guess. And he, I think he did see, you know, the places that we would go, people were generally so incredibly kind to us um, and so sort of honored that we come and wanted to hear what they had to say and uh would often say that no one else cares or nobody came and so you know i mean that's that's a it was a very validating part of the job to be able to offer that opportunity to people what do you think made him such a good listener? Because he's such a good talker. It kind of reminds me of Steve Martin, where it said, if you're really smart and you play dumb, it's always funny. And I think about that a bit with Anthony, that for somebody you know is such a good talker with such remarkable humor and insights, watching him listen is extraordinarily compelling. Well, I think you have to remember that uh, what makes it to the show is a five minute version of, uh, you know, hour and 40 minute conversation. Right. He um, 
one of his techniques was that he would kind of uh, talk incessantly about himself, things that were completely unrelated to the episode or whatever it was we were filming. He'd be talking about uh, his daughter or, you know, whatever he was interested in at the moment. And it's funny, we always used to, <laughs> the crew, he never communicated this to us. I only actually read about this until after his death, that that was an incredibly strategic, um, it was very strategic on his point. For, uh, for, it was a strategy on his part to uh, basically make people comfortable by just talking about himself. Um, things that, again, had nothing to do with anything else. He, he opened up to them and then they opened up to him. And so he knew when to then shut up and let them talk. But I think you would see, I mean, the raw footage versus the finished episodes are very different because we cut out a lot of Tony in those scenes. Well, you, you pointed out an interesting dynamic in terms of your memories of your time with Tony versus um, the episodes that made it to air. And that discrepancy of what the story was in your own mind with your own editorial going <laughs> on there versus the professional editorial. Um, I wonder what that's like. I mean, not many of us have that experience. <laughs> yeah, it definitely adds another level of complication. So in the edits, then we would kind of recast an idealized version of what had happened on the trip, meaning cutting out all the sort of boring stuff that happens when you're traveling or just living. You know, we don't focus on um, food poisoning or jet lag. So on a, in a simple level, the shows were, I guess, we had this ability to recast the memory in a certain way. But I mean, both certainly still exist. And that's one of the things that came up as I was writing the book was um, that difference between the two. Because until you actually really think about some of those memories and experiences, I mean, they kind of become one until you really unpack them, at which point they diverge again. And because again, it was such a nonstop run, there was just a lot of thinking on all this that I hadn't done until after he died. Do you think he struggled a lot between, you, you referred to the image of St. Tony versus how he viewed himself, the, the, what he saw in the mirror, I mean, not all of us have a, a film crew and such talented people that are able to curate and project who we are to the world <laughs> in a way, as you say, that's the fantasy of, of um, I, I can't think of somebody who had, was more often said that they have the greatest job in the world. And you guys all have to defend that and say, we have problems too, despite having this job. I don't wanna travel for 250 days a year. That sounds like hell. To me, for whatever benefits you can get, I mean, I just came back from Spain last week. The airport was terrible and the COVID protocols. Um, that sounds like a lot of stress, but it sounds like it would be very difficult for him to acknowledge the loneliness, the isolation, the downside 
of this life. Well, it's one of the reasons that I think that uh, the crew and Tony were all so close. You know, we come back from these trips and have these amazing experiences and some things that were really could have been upsetting. And, you know, with your friends and family, they say, how, how was it? And pretty much all you can do is say it was great. Because we kind of had to be there to fully understand it. And there wasn't anyone there other than, you know, the five of us who would travel. Um, there were a couple of different teams. I wasn't traveling with Tony on every episode, just to be clear. And so that was, uh, and he also, he would talk about the, there's no way to complain about it or I guess it's kind of a hot potato. He, he very infrequently even would reference it publicly. Um, because again, there's just not really any way to talk about that with sound, without sounding like a you know, overprivileged dick, which I mean, the amount of, it definitely didn't really sink in until after it was over. I forget once in a lifetime. I mean, it's it's once in, uh, I can't even quantify that, just the, the unbelievable gift that it was to go on all those trips the way that we did. It wasn't just going to a place, it was going there and having such unbelievable access to things and, and um, people who were so kind to us and to do it with Tony, who was the most fascinating travel companion ever. I mean, I'll tell you that what the Tony on TV was definitely a watered down version of the real Tony. And I mean that in the best possible way, um, because the real Tony was so much more interesting. Huh. May I ask in what ways? For, for you personally, what made him more interesting in the version that you knew? Well, I think he was a much more complex figure, as anybody would be, than what makes it, you know, to TV. I mean, these are 42-minute long episodes of, of a trip that was, you know, 10, 12 days. So you're seeing a curated 42-minute version of that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's cut out. I mean, he was kinder, funnier, more intense and frightening. I mean, just every everything that was um, people liked about him watching the shows was amplified to a very large factor um, when you actually were with him. And he was very shy, like when he would meet other people, even, you know, the local crew we'd work with, he, you know, he was a lot more reserved around them. But when it was just us, um, I mean, it really is just that it's the Tony from Kitchen Confidential, I think is sort of the best way to describe it. You know, you fuck up and there's going to be a world of hell that's going to come down, raining down on you. You know, you also share together in these great successes. And you know, he was just always so amazingly funny. That's, um, I mean, I miss so many things, but uh, even in some of those uh, upsetting, upsetting moments, you know, he used to talk about how uh, you have to laugh at the world and things, you know, because otherwise there's nothing left to do but cry. And even in the most intense places we were, we always laughed. He was so funny. 
even when the humor was very sort of dark and might not even have translated to anyone else who wasn't there. He was just so funny. Hmm. Um, you, you begin the book with an encounter that it was sort of metaphorically I wanted to cover my eyes, which was directly confronting Asia Argento. And that was particularly interesting to read given the documentary made the choices that it did to really avoid her in many respects that seemed to piss off some critics and that kind of thing. Um, I, I just wonder what that was like to, to embark upon that, that sort of um, feeling, I mean, maybe you can just describe it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but whatever responsibility that some people externally have placed on her for what happened with Bourdain in the last chapter, um, obviously it would be quite different for you who was so close to him. Yeah, well, after Tony died, um, I very much uh, retreated. Um, you know, into my old world, I, I, I stopped working. And um, there was a lot of alcohol around when we were filming, but I, I definitely kind of took that to another level and I figured I'd sort of burn it out my system and then be able to figure out a way to move on. And um, time kept going by and it wasn't getting any better. In fact, it was getting much worse. And I, um, one day realized I needed to, well, one night I needed just to get out of the house because I pretty much had not left the house in a really long time. And so I, I bought a ticket to Italy, sort of, I mean, it was very, very spur of the moment. Um, I mean, at that whole time, been trying to, you know, sort of look for answers in a big way. And I, I think I was hoping to get something, some answer from, from that encounter. When um, ultimately, I think to some degree, the answers don't really matter. Do you think, do you think on some level, I mean, the documentary in your book, it kind of made me think about her role in Tony's life a bit like um, Amy Winehouse's first husband where it seemed like, in a sense, if it wasn't going to be him, Amy was going to cast another person in that role. But a lot of people who are fans of Amy blame the, the, the partner who may have enabled a bunch of negative stuff or negative feelings. Do, do you think that's true with Tony in some respect, that if it wasn't Asia Argento, it was going to be somebody similar where he would, as he said with her, this is going to end terribly, was he looking for somebody that would create that kind of feeling? Maybe he was on some deeply subconscious level, but um, no, I think he was desperately looking for love and to sort of escape the loneliness that um, I think infected a lot of us. So the, the, this show went on for so many years and it's multiple iterations. And I think unlike other programs, there was a, you know, a core group of um, the team that were there for pretty much the whole run. There were people 
came in and out at different times. But um, I mean, Tony would call the show the Widowmaker. There were a lot of broken relationships um, across a lot of different people as a result of that show. That experience again when you you go off and do something that amazing, and then you come home and you can't communicate that to your family or the person that you love becomes very alienating because they can't understand where you're coming from, maybe why you're, you know, a little short. <laughs> and then you have trouble relating to them also. And it kind of creates this divide. Uh, I can speak personally here, divide between myself and, you know, the other people in my life. And um, the show is really important to all of us. And I think that looking back, I can pretty much say, again, speaking personally, that I, I put um, all of my energy into that and did not leave that much of myself for the other people in my life. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it can be very lonely. Um, and Tony was such a romantic. He was, um, he was really looking for love. And I think with Asia, because she was also famous, he, um, she understood that in a way that certain people, other people might not. Do you think, I mean, with the, with the documentary sh showing the people around him describing the stress that Tony was under, wanting to leave the show, having those two producers say to him, okay, walk away, and Tony doesn't know how to respond um, when, when people basically acquiesce to his sort of, not threat, but sort of, I can't manage this, and then it's as if he can't manage not being on the show all the time. And they showed him being more and more strident about the causes that Argento was championing with the Me Too movement and a kind of zero tolerance that Tony had for any infraction um, in people's lives, cutting them off and that kind of thing. I, I wonder if you just speak to, to that chapter when you were around him. Like, what, what did you see and, and what did you make of it? Well, it's interesting. Many, many years before he met Asia. I remember him telling us about Harvey Weinstein being a horrible rapist and how furious he was about that and how awful it was. And I kind of thought it was a tall tale at the time when he was talking about it because how would you know that not be some huge story? So that was something that he was always quite passionate about. I mean, the shows very much reflects there. He was such a champion of the underdog. Anyone who is you know taken advantage of or marginalized by um, more powerful elements, uh, he would always instinct instinctively go to their defense. Um, you know, and then it became even more personal, obviously, with um, Asia, as far as that's concerned. In, in the later years, specifically, I would say the last um, year, year and a half of his life, the stresses were definitely higher for many reasons. And um, yeah, it was, I mean, 
everything was always the way Tony wanted it. And Tony always knew best. And I, I don't mean that he said that. I mean, he Frank always did know best. I mean, he was so brilliant. We, his path that he forged is, you know, how we got where we were going. Um, and so in hindsight, looking back, I mean, yeah, certainly that he was terminating certain relationships, um, kind of very spur of the moment, was unusual. Uh, you know, there, it's hard because uh, he always did out there things always and you know it's like that uh, metaphor of a frog in the boiling water it doesn't hop out you know because it doesn't realize it's getting boiled and started off in regular temperature water so i mean there was something like that like a, he had definitely changed a bit that was clear but i mean he'd always been changing he always evolved i mean that's why he was relevant and interesting for 20 years um, things always changed and you definitely, I mean, he would talk about it, but I don't think anyone who, at least on the show that I know of and traveled like that had any clue or could imagine that something like that would have been possible taking his own life, I mean. One of the things that his brother said at that time was that if he had not been alone when it happened, that he may have seriously harmed somebody else, that there was rage at the heart of it. And you describe an incident where you were, you were filming an episode and Tony attacked you and strangled you until he was torn off. And it made me think, like you mentioned also in the book that you had a history of being bullied, as I did, which was a really transformative experience for me. But I also had once an altercation with somebody who was much taller than I am. He was six foot seven. And instead of punching me, he reached out to strangle me. And I remember almost being like incapacitated that somebody would strangle as opposed to wrestle or strike you because it signified death. It's going for the death of somebody. And I, I just wonder what it was like including that episode with him, because it was just so alarming and troubling and yet very vulnerable to include. Yeah, I um, didn't really have a strategy going into writing the book, frankly. Um, sort of amazing that I finished it. <laughs> it was a couple of months overdue. Um, but the writing and all that stuff just sort of flowed out. And that was, uh, you know, a very unfortunate incident. Um, I. I think, you know, in a certain way, perhaps I represented in that in that moment, the part of him 
that he was most uncomfortable with, meaning the public television side of it. Um, yeah, as far as including it, I. Wasn't really making strategic choices about what was included and not included. It all just kind of flowed. And I mean, certainly there's so much that's not in the book, um, but ultimately that moment, which was years before he, he died, to make that clear is that we had years of, you know, perhaps some of our best shows together after that. Um, I mean, it's an intense job. And families fight. Was he more of a, in that family dynamic, a big brother or a kind of surrogate father for you? Or was he either of those? Because the closeness is, is so remarkable reading about it. Yeah, he was like a, a father figure and a mentor, definitely. Uh, he was superior to everyone without question. So brother would not be the best descriptor. Hmm. How do you mean superior? That's an interesting categorization. That's not something that he would have said about himself, but I mean, it was clear to all of us, like it, we referred to him as our fearless leader amongst mm. the crew. And he was, I mean, he was leading the charge. We might have been on the front line sometimes, even when he wasn't, but it was all his brilliance, his direction that um, got the show to be what it was and us to be physically even where we were. Somebody in the documentary made the observation that the show purported to be about food and many other things, travel and understanding other cultures. But when it came right down to it, it was about Tony trying to become a better person. Do, do you think there's truth to that? Well, he talked, especially in uh, later years, a lot about karma. Um, he was not a particularly spiritual person, at least in any traditional sense. Um, but I mean, I can, I can definitely see where that statement comes from. I mean, he w he really wanted to use the show for good. And I think he was unbelievably successful at that. Um, you know, I, I think that was probably, he had a very guilty conscience. I don't know what that's from. I mean, maybe we all do. Maybe it was because he was given so much, but, um, he really wanted to turn the camera, point the camera at other people and try to give them some small bit of the gift that he had been given. It's it worked very hard to do that. Um, you know, that was not easy. That was not a note from the network. In fact, if anything, he had to fight constantly to make that happen. Hmm. It, it seemed like in your book and also the documentary that the Hong Kong episode of the series was a major turning point for, for everybody close to him working on the show. 
And I just wonder if you could illuminate why that was, what you saw happening in real time, and maybe if you've learned anything in hindsight about what was going on. I um, actually, I wasn't in Hong Kong. Okay. So um, I did right. um, the first Rome episode and then the, um, the uh, Southern Italy episode with Tony and Nazia. And um, we had a great time. Uh, she was very kind to me and he, he definitely got a lot nicer to me in that last year. Um, more creatively supportive. So for me personally, that personality change that occurred at the end is perhaps more complex than it was for anyone else who he might have been vocal with um, because he just got a lot nicer. And, you know, in retrospect, that was definitely a personality change, which is some kind of, I guess, warning sign that someone's not doing well. But um, do you want to ask you about the South Italy episode? Because there's a moment in that that really blew me away when I rewatched that. Um, it's when he lights up a cigarette on camera. And then there are two things that he includes right after it. A child's hands against the sky being pulled apart and then Jesus on the cross. And why it was so striking for me was that Tony explicitly described his reason for stopping smoking as on behalf of his daughter and that he had to be alive for her. So to see him light up again, I couldn't help but immediately go to not only is this happening, but he wants it as part of the record that it's happening. I don't know if that's when he first started smoking, but it really was an alarm for me. And I, I just wondered if you could speak to that well, moment. He desperately did not want to smoke, but he never stopped smoking. He never stopped? The whole time? I think there was not a single shoot I went on with him where he didn't at least bum some smokes. Interesting. What changed there was that he decided he was going to publicly smoke again on the show. And the, um, the visuals you're referring to were chosen by our brilliant um, editor, Hunter. And that was sort of based on what Tony said at that moment when he exhaled, he said, uh, Jesus. And, you know, the sort of Catholicism mixed with, uh, you know, the local version of that in Southern Italy, it was such a big part of that episode. Um, Tony did not say, use a shot of Jesus here. Uh, understood. Yeah. So that kind of came together, I guess, a bit organically. But he did um, want in that first scene to have a cigarette at the end before we filmed it. Now, I watched that very closely and rewatched it. And I know his eyes are behind sunglasses. But his face looks for a second like it might have got emotional after he takes that first puff. Am I am I right in that or? I I didn't see that. It's possible. It's, you know, those darker souls that he would wear were uh, 
<laughs> they block a lot more than just the sun. Um, he was very happy to be there. I mean, he that was a a charmed shoot for him. He had a great time. Um, he, there were all these impossible requests at the last minute, and um, it was a very difficult shoot from the production side. But we pulled it off, and he was was very happy. Hmm. Um. I guess but if you were asking if there was a sadness there, I did not see that. I guess, I mean, the significance I thought was just that he very publicly had been explicit about his reasons for stopping smoking. So to do it on camera, I I just went, wow, this is. I think he was a bit relieved. I mean, he was like, not going to have to lie about it. Huh. Interesting. Um. Getting us to just this last chapter of, of his life with a shoot in France, how involved were you in that final destination? Yeah, uh, not at all, actually. Um, he was in France as, uh, as Jeff and I were preparing to go to India, which was supposed to be about a week after he died, we were leaving. So, um, yeah, I didn't even know anything was going on in France or with him or the relationship. I mean, he was still continuing emails as regular. Um, so it was all kind of a, a big surprise for me personally. How, you, you still seem like this seems very raw to you still from my point of view. How are you, was there any kind of cathartic benefit from this book and revealing your side of this story uh, of your life and, and how it was shared with his for the public? Yeah, I, got to, I still have to quantify that and, and, and figure it out. Um, I'll tell you, if I had thought about anyone reading the book when I was writing it, I wouldn't have been able to write it. Um, I was not writing it for anyone but myself, I guess. And after a couple of years of not working, um, I needed to do something sort of intellectually stimulating. I mean, I'm talking about two years of like not getting out of bed practically. So I, I, um, I stopped drinking and then I had to, to do something and I couldn't do anything but that. I think it was kind of the only way to keep him alive for me in a certain way. You know, I mean, Tony's loss is, his death is still, I think not just even for the people that knew him, but for everyone, a really confusing, traumatic, horrible waste and and sadness. I mean, I've never met anyone in my life that was more full of life than him. And so to think of him not being here is still a very, um, it's difficult. It also doesn't feel like he's gone completely. 
I mean, I think I'm very glad that I'll sort of always have his voice in my head in a certain way, uh, you know, the way that you look at things, the way that you tell a story, the way that you approach the world. I mean, he was the most brilliant teacher. He, um, he his dream job, and he would talk about often, he wanted to be a writing teacher. Hmm. And as he would talk about that, he, um, he also knew that there was no chance in hell that was going to happen. But he was always incredibly generous with any um, journalists or authors or writers. Even there was someone on the crew who had written a you know, 500 page screenplay and Tony read it immediately and gave feedback. Um, I worked with him a lot on the writing of the shows. I would do the scratch voiceover, whoever, you know, as the director or editor would do scratch voiceover, then he would rewrite. Um, and so certainly when it came to writing and also just storytelling, I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant teacher. He would have gotten uh, fired very quickly from any university, you know, for some of his techniques that way. But um, I mean, there'll never be another Tony. And we all miss him a lot. When you you mentioned how much life he had, but it also seems you refer to him having this profound death wish at the same time, which seems to you can't really have one without the other with him. There's so much of this competing forces. Well, I mean, we on the crew all kind of thought of him as immortal mm -hmm. in a certain way. I mean, he'd been through so many accidents, ATV rollovers, you know, motorcycle crash, um, jumping off of these like insane cliffs into unknown rocky pools and always came out without a scratch. Um, yeah, I mean, somebody who lives that fast and hard is so full of life and i tell you i i have a terrible fear of flying which <laughs> made the job very difficult and um when tony was on a plane with me it was the only time i wasn't scared to fly because there was no chance that plane was going to crash because he was on it hmm. his luck was so good i mean so, sometimes we'd film athletics or sporting things or like a game of darts or drinking games in the show things he'd never played before and he would always win at everything he did it would people would sometimes wonder if he was a vampire <laughs> that came up several times um he had just had the most unbelievable luck i i know with with grief there can be a struggle to keep somebody who's gone alive or with somebody alive to put them put them away um how, how do you put the pieces back together from this huge chapter of time you shared with this man going forward to the rest of your life you're not even 40 yet right uh just turned 40 recently yeah just turned 40 um yeah. so how do you move forward from here what's next for you i mean as I say, it seems quite raw, but at the same time, it must have taken a lot of strength to, to put together what you did with this book. 
which I think is very hopeful. Yeah, I, I uh, it's a good question. Um, I don't look forward to a future in which I don't talk about Tony. At the same time, some version of moving on has to happen. Uh, I've just very recently finished writing the book, so uh, I guess I'm embarking on um, whatever that next adventure will be. Do you want that to be with more books or TV or film? I will tell you that writing that book was significantly harder than anything else I'd ever done. Um, partially because it, it, it was non-collaborative to a great degree. I mean, one of the great things about working with a really talented team of people making that show is you're always sort of checked um, or you bounce ideas off of people. And I found that very intellectually stimulating. The writing, it was also during the pandemic, so that kind of added to it, but the writing was um, very solitary, which is, I think, something I needed to do to go back there as far as what's in the book. But um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I, I think one of the most powerful moments that I ever saw on the show, I don't know if you were working on it, was with Tony and, and one of his early heroes, um, Iggy Pop, and asked him, I, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this wrong, but about what is, like, what blows you away right now? And Iggy, Iggy's simple but um, pretty earth-shattering response was just, just being loved and accepting that love. Um, were, were you involved in that shoot? Uh, I, I wasn't, but I know that um, interchange, and Tony was very surprised by that. Um, I mean, I think Iggy had a lot of things figured out that Tony still struggled with. Is it, Was there I, anything? Sorry, go ahead. No, please. I, I was just going to say, was there anything in writing this book that can help you going forward after this profound loss in your life? It really helped me process a lot of, I'm not even gonna say his death, but um, that amazing period, 16 years of my life working on TV with him. Um, There was something about putting it down on paper that took it out of my head. And I guess I don't want to be so trite as to say sort of a feeling of lightness and I wouldn't even describe it that way, but a kind of a, a weight is slightly lifted in a certain sense. I mean, I, I can kind of feel that, but it was, I didn't, set out to write a book about him that wasn't like a, a plan or particularly you know calculated it just was the only thing i could do sometimes you can't really explain things um yeah so i guess i'll just continue to follow wherever my path leads were you, last question, were you surprised 
about the reaction to his death? Like just how global it was in impact? Absolutely. Uh, as were, I think, every other person I knew who worked on the show, um, kind of blown away by it, actually. I mean, I knew that he was popular and people watched the shows, but we always thought it was more of a fringe audience. Um, I mean, I remember that morning, uh, Donald Trump in front of the helicopter spoke about him. And the number of people at the memorial and just the outpouring of grief and the fact that even now people are still so interested in him. We didn't know that. The question, I guess, that is harder to answer is how much he knew that. Um, maybe we'll never know. He certainly didn't operate like, I mean, the way that he sort of approached things and talked about it, it was always like you're, you're, you're one mistake, you're one bad show away from oblivion, which wasn't even like the loss of fame, but it had sort of talked about that as like being out of a job. Um, and it adds a certain level of uh, poignancy to the whole thing. Uh, I mean, I'm so proud of him for, I didn't realize how many people he had touched and inspired. Um, and uh, I'm so proud and honored that, that he did have such a wide reach. Um, it's like, good for you, Tony. <laughs> that would have meant a lot to him. I mean, especially now, you know, fame isn't the problem for Tony anymore. And but the inspiring people to be curious and to um, be good citizens, especially when you travel and how travel broadens your perspective on things. For him to to know just how many people I mean, reading afterwards, how many people left their job they didn't like and moved across the world to do something else or, you know, change careers because of him. It's very special. I'm, and I'm very honored to have been uh, a part of that in whatever small way I was. Thanks for your time today. And I, I apologize. It's strange to talk to a stranger about such an intimate thing. So I... <laughs> oh, it was a real pleasure speaking to you, Bryn. Thank you so much for, for including me. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.